Good morning again. I see, I see that you all remember to move your clocks back, so that's one big check mark for this morning, a successful day, so congratulations. So last week, Brandon led us through the quirky and slightly dense character of Nicodemus, who arrives by night and doesn't quite understand what Jesus is saying. Their exchange leads to the famous John 3.16 verse, you know, the God so loved, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Brandon pointed out how in the modern usage these days, it's that whosoever believes in him is more often than not used as a mark of division, of judgment. Generally, the whosoever being discussed at that time is in some trouble, or at least in the eyes of the speaker. Now, as you may have noticed, this morning was a long reading in the gospel. I almost said that's the sermon, which it could have been. But uh, I, th I think that the combination of last week's discussion about Nicodemus and then this long and quirky gospel reading deserves some time spent on it. So I'm going to try to unpack it a little bit for both you and me. So this week, as you know, we get the Samaritan woman at the wall. She's all the things that Nicodemus is not. And the placement of this reading right after the Nicodemus one invites the obvious comparisons. She's an unnamed woman. He's a known and named leader of the Jews. And it's always interesting in the gospel who gets a name and who doesn't and how that relates to power. She's a Samaritan. He's a Jew. And these are centuries-long rivals. She's a learner who's open to Jesus' words while he's a teacher closed to the new ways of thinking that Jesus presents. Now, she has a questionable past, you know, the husbands and all. He's a respected moral leader. But most obvious, she encounters Jesus at noontime. He comes under the cover of night. And you could go on to point out that her witness leads to the, leads to the conversion of the entire village, while well, his helplessness prevents him from even helping Jesus' crucifixion. But nonetheless, he gets a name and she goes unnamed. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll come back to that. You see, there's more at work. There's a lot at work in this long and sometimes erratic story about the Samaritan woman. It jumps around to a lot of different topics. But it is a rich allegory building on the, uh, and breaking down essential themes of identity and gender, belief, and even salvation. So it's so much more than what might be called a feminist answer to Nicodemus' defiance and darkness. Now first, a quick dive into Samaritan history helps unwrap some of these themes, and I promise this won't be too painful for those who don't like history, so bear with me. So Samaria is an area that is in the northern kingdom that was known as Israel, and it broke away from the southern kingdom, Judah, and was later captured by the Assyrians, in much the same way that Judah would be later captured by the Babylonians. And while the Babylonians moved the people of Judah, well, the wealthy ones anyway, to captivity together in Babylon, the Assyrians forced their subjects to kind of mix it up. Different nationalities lived side by side, exchanging customs, beliefs, and most of all, intermarrying. The Judean bloodline, on the other hand, stayed pretty clean. At least, they would tell you that. The Samaritans were of mixed blood, and as such, 
seen as less in the eyes of the Judeans. Even though they worshiped the same God, they held a similar faith, they were somehow seen as the other. And Jacob plays an important role in the Samaritan sense of who they are. He placed the first house of God in Samaria, in Bethel, which literally means house of God. Abraham's first altar was in the north as well, at Shechem, which is at the foot of Mount Gerizim. In these ways, it's really arguable that the people of Samaria had a stronger claim to a connection with God and the history of the Jews than their Judean counterparts. But of course, this was overlooked by the Judeans who saw themselves as infinitely superior. And the well at the center of today's drama was the place where Jacob first met Rachel, who would later become his wife. In today's story, we catch what you might call echoes of the well as a place of meeting, place of betrothal, in the interactions between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. So that little bit of history hopefully explains some of the twists and turns of this, again, long gospel story. So it opens with Jesus asking for water. And the woman, her first response is immediately to call out her difference. It's about identity. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? You know, it's interesting how deeply the sense of being an other can penetrate into our sense of who we are. See, it's the first thing she says. Now, Jesus has no bucket and the well is deep. And then she asks, are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well? Now, for the Samaritans, Jacob's meeting Rachel at the well was followed by something that's not in our scripture, but he actually moves the stone from the top of the well and water flows freely from it. So if Jesus, without a bucket, were able to cause the waters to flow like that, he wouldn't need the bucket. And he'd be doing what Jacob did. So she wonders, can he do that? And then he proclaims the true water of life. And it's interesting, her desire for it is immediate. She doesn't have to be convinced. Sir, give me this water that I may never be thirsty. Then he, out of nowhere, turns to, go, call your husband and come back. Now, this shift to her husband is abrupt and to our ears may not make much sense. But the significance of the well, and this one in particular, the sight of Jacob and Rachel's meeting, makes the question about her husband incredibly important. Any well, any place that attracts all the people, makes it a potential site of courtship, and none more so than this particular well with Jacob and Rachel. So she responds, she has no husband and had five previous ones. While some see this as a sign of her loose morals, it's notable Jesus gives no judgment. He's merely stating the obvious. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. In the ancient Near East, the number six was a sign of incompleteness. The six jugs of water at the wedding in Cana are incomplete until Jesus turns them into wine. Here the six husbands of the Samaritan woman are incomplete until she meets Jesus, called in chapter three earlier, the bridegroom. So symbolically, there's a kind of betrothal happening here, a kind of connection between the woman and Jesus, between the Samaria and Judea in the person of Jesus. So she deems him a prophet 
And then in another twist, she talks about places of worship. Sir, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say the place must be where worship is in Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting, as I noted earlier, the Samaritans probably had a stronger case to the history of worshiping on a mountain. But that still is a point of connection, the place of worship, where to worship, is, it, is something that still disconnects and separates these two. Well, then Jesus reframes the whole conversation about places of worship. They don't matter anymore. Because of the coming of the Son of Man, he tells her, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, in spirit and in truth. See, if God is spirit, then those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So in Jesus, the division around places of worship disappear. In Jesus, divisions disappear. Now then, another twist. This leads the Samaritan woman to announce the, the Messiah. And when he comes, he will proclaim all things to them. Now it's worth noting that this interpretation of the Messiah might be considered the revealer of God, one who reveals God. And that's a little different from the Judeans' understanding of the Messiah. As we read often in the scripture, and especially in Acts, theirs is more a warrior-conqueror Messiah who will take back the kingdom from the Romans. And I think there's beauty in this idea of the Messiah, the Christ, as revealer, as revelation. You see, it's less about power and control and more about seeking out and being shown pathways to the divine, to the revelation, to God. At the Samaritan woman's mention of the Messiah, Jesus declares, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. I am. I am. This links Jesus directly to Yahweh in the burning bush with Moses in Exodus. God speaks through the verse, I am who I am. And this is the first time in the gospel that Jesus acknowledges his true nature as the Messiah, the Son of God. And it echoes a later claim to Martha who's going, when, when he's going to Lazarus' tomb that when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now at this revelation of the Messiah, the disciples show up. But the woman, she's so moved, she rushes back to the people in the village, leaving her water jar at the well. The whole reason she came, because she's now tasting the uh, tasting of the living waters and thirst no more. She says, come and see. Come and see a man who's told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? Come and see. Now, some read this final question, he cannot be the Messiah, can he, as a, as a point of doubt. But I think maybe it's a space that allows others to find faith on their own. See, they can come and see and learn and believe on their own. Don't just take her word or anyone's. Then the reading takes yet another turn to the disciples and food. So first we have living water, and now Jesus talks about a kind of spiritual food. I have food to eat that you do not, do not know about. I'm talking about food leads to sowing and planting and reaping. And the harvest is already coming in. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. I think this analogy to harvest time 
and reapers and sowers makes the most sense if we think of the Samaritan woman and the people of the village as being among the gathered fruits that Jesus talks about. They are the gathered fruits for eternal life and they, he is harvesting as they speak. They are literally surrounding the disciples. Then the villagers, the villagers ask Jesus to stay with them and he does for two days. And then, he, and then they say, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is truly the savior of the world. That is quite a harvest. So in today's reading, this Samaritan woman's encounter with Christ shakes up all her preconceived ideas of being an outsider, of being an other, shakes up ideas of who she is and her identity, shakes up belief, shakes up what happens in salvation. It shakes them up, it actually breaks them down. So I ask you, how might your encounter with the risen Christ that we'll have in a few minutes with the communion, with the Eucharist, how might that encounter break down barriers, erase boundaries, create new communities? See, the Samaritan woman is a witness to the Messiah, the Christ, and she responds with openness and with belief and with the timeless cry, come and see, come and see, come and see. This morning I invite you to come and see, to be the witness to the risen Christ, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is truly the savior of the world. Amen.